1: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. my The scripture reading for today's sermon is found in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, verses 25 through 29. The book of Hebrews is located in the New Testament toward the back of your Bible. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's the blue one before you. The scripture reference will be found on page 1009. This passage, we're being exhorted to receive Christ and thus inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Consider the comfort and security afforded all of God's elect in the reception of such a kingdom. God be praised. Let us hear the word of the the Lord, the almighty and sovereign God.
2: This morning we're going to, uh, as I got into this further and further in the week, uh, I was at RYM uh, rooming with our uh, esteemed uh, music director. Wasn't that interesting? We got to room together this week. Um, he was uh, helping to lead music and I was teaching down there. But as I, as I went through the week, I came to focus this week simply on verse 25, and next week we're going to uh, focus on verses 26 through 29. There's just so much that I felt like I needed to say. So we're going to focus then on this idea of God's warning to us from heaven. What does that mean? What does that mean for us, this warning from heaven that he gives us? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we will have a new awareness of the presence of Your Word among us, the urgency of that Word, and be encouraged to give ourselves to Your Word. Lord, be encouraged to turn from anything and everything that would keep us from hearing Your Word, Your voice. Lord, we pray that This warning given so many years ago to these people in danger of apostasy would strengthen us and protect us, ourselves, from ever turning away from giving ourselves completely to the Lord Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I read an account by George Grant when he was a pastor in Houston, uh, Texas. See, from Mississippi, we have to say Texas because Houston, Mississippi, just in case you're confused. Um, He was from, uh, he he lived in Houston and he came to know a fellow named Johnny Porston who had, in a very difficult time in America at that point of unemployment and Uh, People struggling, regular working people struggling. Johnny Porston had left Philadelphia to come down to Houston because Houston was supposedly the Mecca of of new jobs because of the boom there in the 80s. Uh, Well, he got to Houston and he brought with him four children. Two had dysentery when he arrived. He lost his job up there. His job search here in Houston, there in Houston, was fruitless. They lived out of their Ford Torino under a bridge with others who had camped out some two to three dozen people. And he had no job, no money, no food, and finally, no hope. And in his book, Bringing in the Sheaves, a book subtitled Transforming Poverty into Productivity, written in 1985. George Grant Grant begins with this account. By the time I arrived on the scene, a crowd had already gathered. Some stood about uncomfortably talking in hushed and guarded tones. Others shouted up at the solitary figure perched between trusses of the bridge. Others had sauntered out into the knee-deep waters of the San Jacinto River, River, hoping for an unhindered view of the action. Making my way through the oglers and the curiosity seekers, I got to within ten yards of the bridge when a voice split the air. Preacher, don't you come no closer. I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump. Do you hear? Squinting in the half light, I recognized the huddled and desperate form clinging to the rusty girder. It was Johnny Porston. Instantly, my mind began racing as I offered words of comfort, assurance, and scripture. Shivering in the damp coolness of twilight, I talked, I pleaded, I exhorted, and I prayed. Just as the police arrived, I decided I'd best make a move before this whole affair raged out of control. I certainly didn't want Johnny to spend the night in jail. Slowly, I extended my hand toward him and inched across the catwalk. Stop, preacher, I swear you, I'll jump one more inch to save your time and save your breath. So he talked on of how he talked with him, how the scene gathered all these people and finally, he says, the dull, sickening thud of Johnny's body on the surface of the sandbar still sounded in my ears weeks later. The shrieks and the gasps and the wail of the sirens invaded my every waking moment. I begin with that because even though these Jewish people didn't realize even, and this is a really sad situation, that they were actually on a bridge. They were, in the writer's mind, and we would say in God's mind, abandoning all hope of Jesus Christ. Abandoning all hope of life in Him. All hope of everlasting life in Christ. To turn from that, to find supposedly comfort, security, well-being... An avoidance of all persecution by simply returning back to their Jewish roots. Because at that time, they wouldn't be persecuted as they would be if they remained Christians. They really thought they were getting off a bridge. And yet, they were getting onto the bridge to jump to their death. To their spiritual death. And the reason I set up such a gruesome situation is that what happens in those scenes, what happened at that time? He doesn't really explain George Grant, but no doubt somebody had gone to get him, perhaps. Or in many cases, people do. They try to get a loved one, a close friend, somebody that could talk sense into this person that is perched on an overhang. This writer is bringing God onto the bridge for these people. He's he's bringing God onto the bridge. He says that God is here and he is speaking to them. And he puts it this way, that he spoke in one way at Mount Sinai. He spoke on earth, as we're going to see. But now he is warning from heaven. And it's just that dangerous, just that critical, that they hear this one who is warning them from heaven. Warning them against taking this leap that will be their spiritual death. The word speaking is very important in this passage because in verse 24, the last phrase is, As he has laid out in verses 22 through 24, the glorious kingdom to which we've come to to give us some sense of of its majesty and beauty and permanence. He finally gives us the whole reason for this new kingdom that we have pictured as gathered in the throne room of God to the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then without a transition word, without any conjunction, and this is rather unusual, just abruptly, the hook word is this speaking. Don't refuse him. In fact, the first words are, as he's speaking, don't refuse him. So you get that feel that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Don't. And, and then as he speaks, don't refuse him. That's the feel of the passage. It almost grabs you. So we're to tie in, you see, this speaking from heaven with all that he has just said in verses 22 through 24. They came to a mountain, as we saw last week. They came to this place of foreboding and fear and darkness where everything... Pointing to the fact that they were separate from God, that they were not worthy of God. It was a teaching time for the kingdom of God to point to the need of someone to come and make sacrifice for them. The need of someone to open the way into the presence of God. And so he contrasts verses 18 through 21 with 22 through 24. You're visiting with us. That's where we were last week. To show now you have intimacy where we couldn't have had intimacy. Now we're in the presence of angels worshiping God. Otherwise, in the Old Testament, they were separated from the angelic hosts on the mountain. To show what has been opened up through Jesus Christ. And so the speaking that he talks about is a contrast First, in the first place, he spoke then he speaks now. And that's the speaking that we must listen to. So That's the first thing I just want to point out. There was a speaking then, but now a, uh, there's a speaking now. And notice how he takes that earth, those those the, the situation on earth versus uh, 18 through 21, the situation in heaven. And then he plays off of that in verse twenty five. So, and he says, if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? If he spoke in this earthly way and they refused him and suffered judgment, how much more when he speaks from heaven and we refuse it? Spoke then, spoke now. Now. Let's get a little bit more background to that speaking then and speaking now all the way to the beginning of Hebrews chapter one. And you'll see that this verse twenty five is really the climax of his pastoral urging. This is the climax of his effort to proclaim you mustn't refuse what is being said to you. And he keeps saying, if if he spoke then, look how he's spoken now. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so he looks at the whole Old Testament economy, not just Mount Sinai. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Already it was prophets in many ways, but now the son who's the heir of all things, the creator of the world, that's who he spoke through. You get a feel for the difference right off the bat in in Hebrews chapter one. And he goes on to say he is the radiance of the glory of God. The prophets weren't. He's the exact imprint of his nature. The prophets weren't. He opposed the universe by the word of his power. The prophets weren't. And then he speaks of purification for sins. Sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who he's spoken by. That's behind this statement. Now he's speaking from heaven. He's speaking through his son, the majestic one that sits down at the right hand of God. Then and now, and then look how he argues in chapter two. This passage, chapter two, one through four, is very close. It's the closest section to the verse we've just read. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. Same word for uh, see, see that you do not refuse him. It's the same word here. It's just translated differently. Uh, We could translate it, then see that you pay closer attention. But the same word introduces both of these. So you get his theme. Place closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Declared at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this word declared by angels, you might say it was a lesser word, almost the feel is a less important word. Not that it was not important. It was God's word for that day. But there's this contrast. If that word, uh, as he puts it here, disobedience to that word meant a just retribution. What is it going to be if we neglect the word now spoken through his son? We tend to think, oh, boy, I'm just glad I'm not in the Old Testament because now I can relax and just kind of float, you know. I could just cruise down the river. There you had to really be careful. Now you don't have to be careful anymore. You don't have to know the word, follow the word. You can just kind of pay a little attention to the word. There you really had to pay attention to the word. I don't get that that's the feel here, do you? (laughs) I just don't get that that's the feel here. I get quite the opposite. If ever. Ever we are to show attention to the word that God has spoken. It is now as he has spoken to us in his son, the word now from heaven, from heaven. So this God who whose voice shook the earth at Sinai, who swore that those who broke covenant would not enter his rest. And you see, this is in chapter three. Notice how he says in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And there in that that whole passage, he's talking about how they didn't hear the word and they died in the wilderness because of it. Now, you mustn't turn away from that word. And in chapter three, quoting Psalm 95, it's interesting. He's he's quoting a preacher. Let's let's say this. Here's a preacher quoting a preacher who's talking about the time in the wilderness. So the person in Psalm 95 is saying, don't harden your voice like they did in the wilderness. And now the writer of Hebrews is quoting this person and saying, you know, he said today today. He said, today, Israel, don't turn away from God like your brothers did in the wilderness. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, still today, don't turn away, you Christians, like these people did in the day of the psalmist and like these people did in the wilderness. And he's emphasizing today, now the word is coming to you, now the word is coming. Comes from God, and today, don't harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's a direct quote from ninety-five, Psalm 95, but you can feel he's saying it straight to these people. And you know he would want us to say it straight to each other today. Today, John, Mary, Sam, today, don't harden your voice, don't harden your heart. To this voice that is coming to you. God's word. And it is, it is present tense. God is speaking. Don't disregard him. And that's the feel of Hebrews 12. It's the feel of the whole Bible. That it's not just that he spoke. but he is speaking continually from heaven through his Savior to us. Through this Savior to us. This Savior exalted at his right hand. And so this revelation of Christ continually flows to us today He's speaking and tomorrow he's speaking and the next day he's speaking. His word goes to us. He spoke in his son, chapter one, verse two, but that is a continual speaking in his son. So here's that first aspect of verse 25. They didn't escape when they refused him. We warned them on earth. How much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? And then the second place, I want you to notice what it means, something of what it means that he warns us from heaven. We have first you see this contrast. He spoke this way. Now he speaks from heaven. Well, what does that mean exactly that he speaks from heaven? Well, he had just, the the clue is to verse 24, this sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. And so now he is speaking to us, you might say, by the blood of Christ. He is speaking to us in connection with that blood. He is speaking to us in virtue of the redemption that he has provided in Christ. And that's the force of God being on the bridge to us. We that would be jumping to our death, we that would be abandoning all hope and abandoning God. He's urging upon us his love in Christ. He's urging, really, the writer, all of verses 22 through 24 But look, you're you're a part of Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You're in the midst of innumerable angels. You're in this assembly enrolled in heaven. You're in intimacy with God. You have Jesus uh, whose whose blood sprinkles you. Are you going to abandon that? I appeal to you. I appeal to you on this, this salvation that you would be turning your back upon. This demonstration of God's passion for your good, his extravagant expenditure to do you good. You see, that's the urging of toward us. Don't turn away from this God. As you look at him more and more, you realize everything in him is devoted to my good. How can I turn away from him? Everything in him. Can you imagine a, a, a parent having to speak to his, his own child? And, and the love and the compassion that he would have, the, the desire to have that child back and safe and try to repair everything that's gone wrong inside and everything that's been wrong in their life to give them a whole life again. Can you imagine the pain and the agony and the urgency of a parent if that was happening to their own child? It's nothing compared To the urgency of God. The cross itself is God. It's the sign, it's the indicator of the passion that God has for those who are lost. The urgency with which He presses upon them His own Son. This is the assurance of his unlimited, limited desire, his all out sacrifice for us. He speaks to us through the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. He, in a sense, you see, God is now put on the face of the death of Christ. That's how you know him now is through Christ. There is no other God. There is no other God. There is no other way to get to him. There is no other way to understand him. He is the God who sacrificed his son. He speaks from heaven now. No, not from earth. He speaks from the majestic one who's now opened up heaven. From the one who's gone, as he's mentioned several times in chapter six and seven and ten, he's opened up the way into intimacy with God. It's it's from that. It's almost as though God from inside the intimacy of that place where Jesus is. He's speaking out, urging us off the bridge to come to Intimacy that's been opened up for anyone who'll have it. Will we refuse that? Will we refuse intimacy with God? So it's within this context. It's within verses 20 through to 24 that he speaks. In the context of his agony and suffering for our sakes, is offering up of Himself for our everlasting happiness, and I think again of that phrase in John chapter twelve, uh, chapter fifteen, verse twenty-five, where Jesus, speaking of mankind's hatred against God, he quotes an Old Testament verse and he says, "They hated me, they hated me without cause." See, mankind abandons God. Adam and Eve say, they, they fall to the temptation of the uh, of Satan. And they say, you don't have my best interest at heart. You, you do not care for me. They embrace what I call this week in my seminar, the promise from hell. The promise from hell. And they went after that promise. And you know what the cross is? The cross is God coming and saying... You hated me without cause. You hated me without cause. This is what I'll do for you. This is the measure of how I'll care for you. This is the measure how I'll spend anything to do you good forever. I wouldn't even spare my son for you. Now to many people, the cross is just foolishness. A man dead on the cross, is he a failure, was he a criminal, this is offensive, you mean I have to have somebody die for me, I don't want to hear it. But to those who are enabled by God to see it, it is the glory of God. It is the glory of God shown in the cross that he would love people that way. And that's what the writer is saying to them. What is going to happen to you? What kind of judgment if you turn away from this God who is speaking to you from heaven who is offering Himself through His Son? It'll be a catastrophic leap to your own death and judgment. If you turn away from this God, this this real and pressing danger, He is warning. He is warning from heaven. Right now. So the idea is, using my illustration, you're right now on that bridge. God is right now speaking to you. And, of course, we could take the uh, route that some have taken, a a very famous uh, preacher, uh, so-called, who has said, I don't use the word sin because it's negative. Right? Some of you know who I'm talking about. Can you imagine that you have a house in California on the mountain and there's a huge firestorm and people come up to you and rattle your door and you open the door and they say, there's a fire sweeping through here, it's going to burn your house right up. And you say, I don't like the negative word fire. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy rose his eyes and says, 911, <laughs> this guy needs psychological help right here. Isn't it a wonderful thing that they would come and warn him? Isn't it a wonderful thing that they would... Isn't it love? Isn't it the greatest kindness to be warned? To be told of your condition? And here, God is on the bridge as we blindly would, as, as they... We're blindly leaping off, refusing to trust Christ, losing hope. He keeps saying in this passage, in this book, let's hold fast the hope of our confidence. You see, what was happening was the hope of eternal life and the hope of the glory that God would unveil, the hope of being kings and queens forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It just didn't ride with them anymore. It wasn't holding their hearts. They were abandoning that hope. It's just like someone abandoning hope in this world and they're just going to throw in the towel. And they were religiously doing that, losing their lives. Because Christ is the only hope. And that's why John Owen, in this very passage, says. It's evident that human nature cannot more highly despise and provoke God by this sin of not believing in Christ. There's no greater aggravation and way to despise God than His offering of His own Son and urging Him and meaning every word of it Wanting to, as Jesus said of Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a mother hen would her chicks, but you wouldn't. I wonder sometimes, and though I have to admit (laughs) to my own temptation here, but sometimes when I see... A flag out at the beach because the waves are really bad and they say there's a riptide. Some of you guys may be the same. It's like, I'm going in that water, you know. <laughs> Big, tough Darwin, <clears throat> Superman, yeah. Um, But I don't. But I, I, I want to because I just love to get in waves so much. And I love them to be just hard. I love them to almost slam me into the sand, you know. I just love that. But you can imagine a guy... The red flag's out. He goes in anyway, and he, they say, you just don't know what a riptide is like. You just don't know. Yeah, yeah, I can swim. I can get to the top. And I just wonder sometimes, because it's happened, people go into the water and they drown. And I wonder, as they're being pulled out, do they think, I didn't listen. You see, he says here, verse 25, they did not escape when they refused him. He warned them. He warned them at Mount Sinai. They didn't believe him. And they died over a 40 year period in the wilderness. They had to learn by experience that the judgment of the covenant, the, the judgment of God for those that refuse him is real. That was just an earthly judgment. And this 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 writer is he doesn't want them to learn in the eternal judgment the reality of God's judgment. They don't want to be away he doesn't want them to be part of the way God's wrath is glorified and his righteousness shone forth forever. Geese are uh, are great animals. You know, we, we, uh, as I was telling my uh, students this week, we, you feel like sometimes in Fort Worth that you're in the movie The Birds, don't you? You know. I've been on, I've been on Brian Irvin, uh, about a block from the interstate headed north, and I mean on every single pole, blackbirds. And I look, I'm you know, just looking at all the buildings. Blackbirds everywhere, and they're fly I, I just think if they start coming onto my car, you know, it's all over. You know, pecking through the glass, all the ugh. geese. So they, they're just in this massive flock, and you watch them everywhere, and they're just swirling. And, and it is, if it's not too ominous, you know, it can be fascinating at times. At least when you're driving, and they're in a field or something, it is. But geese are really different, aren't they? Uh, geese are in the V. And the front guy's bearing the brunt of the wind, as you know. And the other guys are playing off his draft, just like if you were behind an 18-wheeler. You know, you could save gas if they let you do that, you know. So these guys are playing off the draft, and and so they switch places regularly. So that you, you tire out, okay, my turn, he's up front, and then another switches. And that's why they honk, they tell us. They're encouraging the front guy, you know. Ah, ah, ah you know. <laughs> Go, dude, go, dude, go, dude. <laughs> so you hear them honking. You just smile because they're encouraging their buddy. You know, keep, keep flying. Keep flying. Because they know it's going to be their turn and you're going to have to encourage me as though geese thought about all that. <clears throat> but wouldn't it be a horrible thing? Hear these geese coming down south where they're going to have their babies and. Raise them for a while and then they're going to take them back up north and when they're grown and able to fly. But this V just starts off and starts flying into the Pacific. Uh uh. Confident, cool, you know, they're going and they're changing places and, and they just go out in the Pacific until their wings just give away and they just all die out there. Thinking that they're going in a good direction, you know, confident. Things are going well, but you just turn and you went in a different direction from life what 's wrong? What kind of insanity, what kind of thing interfered with that DNA gyroscope that was given them to fly south? No, it went crazy and they flew a different direction and they died and that's what ha- that 's what happens to you and I, you and me we're so. Insane, and that's the word that Paul uses in the end of 1 Timothy. He says that you may come to your senses. It's a word that, it has two words, to come again to being sober. So we've been like drunk people riding down the wrong side of a four lane. And he says, become sober and give yourself to the God who made you. Don't fly in this direction. Come to where life is to be had. Can you imagine in horror for a father to see his own child in front of his house walk across the street and before he could get to it, he hops in the car with someone that's going to hurt him. And he never sees his child again. Jesus has said, Satan is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He is the molester of humankind. And dear friend, you do not have a choice to do your thing. You have a choice to either do God's thing and to give yourself up to this one who sacrificed his son or to turn your back on him. But it's not as though you're in neutral territory then. To simply turn your back and say, I'm not going to have any regard for God. You're already in demon territory. You're already doing what Satan wants every human being to do. And if you're saying, I'm just doing my thing and nobody, particularly not God, is going to tell me what to do. Satan says,
1: my boy, my girl.
2: Jesus said of the Pharisees, you are of your father. Father the devil, and you do the desires of your father. And of course, they're so offended. They're like, I'm opposed to Satan. I'm not demonic. I'm not satanic. I'm not. I have nothing to do with your self-righteousness, your refusal to trust him. That's where you are. Why do you not trust God? Would you ask yourself that question? Why do you not trust God? Until you believe and and get to the bottom of that and understand, it's because I don't trust him. It's because I don't believe in his goodness. It's like John Adams said about France when he was trying to negotiate a treaty with France. He said, you won't, they won't do it unless it's in their best interest. France didn't care about a republic. They had a monarchy. Okay. They weren't concerned about that. They were concerned if if you tell them, "Hey, if you support us, then you'll be humiliating and weak, humiliating and weakening England." And France is like, Ooh, "I'm with you. I'd love to see England go down. Whatever happens to America. They didn't want America to be a world power. They want France to be a world power. They weren't out for the United States. good. They're out for France is good. Also, the possibility of trade with this country that who knows what kind of wealth is there. And John Adams says, it's only interest that will do it. It's only interest that we can depend on. It's only when you believe that it's for your best interest. And I want to tell you, to the degree that you do not entrust yourself to God, that's the degree to which... You really don't think. You really aren't convinced that He cares about you. And the cross of Christ really doesn't mean to you that He loves me with all of His being and wants me to come to Him so that I can be cared for the rest of my life. Will you ask Him to take away, take away your suspicions? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless us that we... We'll give ourselves to this One who is warning us from heaven, who is warning us from within the veil of Christ, who is warning us through the precious blood of Christ. O oh Lord, may we not refuse Him. May we not turn our backs. May we not leap to our deaths. O oh Lord, may we hear that voice of passion and love that offers His own Son and says, I will work all things together for the good of Your character, for the good of Your love for others and Your love of God, everything to make You more and more a person like Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, may we trust You with the whole of our beings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
0: Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light O oh, come with blissful ray Great, radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Don't you chase my fears?